Morning everyone. Happy Father's Day. If you sat next to a man, why don't you give him a nudge and say happy Father's Day. We love you. We on you, come on. Uh, we are the church, uh, the family of God. And whether you have your own biological children or not, uh, we honor you as fathers in our house, in the uh, house of God this morning. There's something amazing about the fact that God placed us together in family, isn't there? I love it. Um, it's probably um, my most favorite thing about church, that we get to do our relationships and our lives alongside our family, who aren't our biological family, but they are our spiritual family, and that we belong. Isn't it good to know that you belong somewhere uh, in a place where uh, there's people all over the place that feel isolated and lonely? I can say that you belong here. Uh, you really belong here. So happy Father's Day uh, to all the men, and uh, we want to this morning celebrate you and just talk a little bit about the role of uh, the fatherhood of God, the Father's heart of God, and also what that means for us here uh, in the church and in the city. And there's something really beautiful, isn't there, about uh, baptizing people into the family of God. This is like an initiation into the family of God. And uh, these people who said yesterday across the, uh, across the whole of a life, uh, saying yes to following Jesus, uh, being baptized and initiated into his family, entering into his family. And uh, Jesus did it as, as well himself. And there's a beautiful link between uh, the baptism of Jesus and the Father heart of God. I want to remind you that on the day that Jesus was baptized, uh, the Gospels paint a picture of that account where uh, Jesus went uh, under the waters. He's baptized by his cousin John. And he came back up after he'd... Uh, uh, gone through the waters, and the Gospels talk about the heavens opening and uh, the Spirit of God descending on Jesus in bodily form as a dove. I've got a pigeon phobia, everyone, and that like, links to doves as well. And if a dove landed on me, I don't know what I'd do. But anyway, Jesus is a different person. So uh, the Spirit of God landed uh, on uh, Jesus and then the voice from heaven said, presenting Jesus as the Son of God, the Father said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Affirmation from the Father on the uh, baptismal day of Jesus. I think there's nothing more encouraging or supporting or strengthening and affirming than the voice of a father speaking acceptance and love before son's ever even done anything, before he's worked a miracle, before he's really even said who he is, the father says, this is my son and I'm really pleased with him. And so this morning it's really right that as the church uh, of God, we celebrate uh, fathers and the father heart of God. And we want to tell some stories and we want to remind you of the powerful love of our Father in heaven and what that means for our, uh, us as individuals, what it means for us to rest back in him, what it means for us as a church family and what it means for our city as well. And so uh, I'm going to tell you this story that I heard uh, earlier on this year. It's about elephants in South Africa. Some years ago, um, the officials in the Kruger National Park in South Africa uh, had a growing elephant problem. There were too many elephants. 
They were once endangered, but now they were bigger than the park could sustain too many of them. So they had to uh, take measures to reduce and thin the ranks of these elephants. And so they devised a plan to relocate the uh, elephants into a different game reserve in Africa. So obviously, elephants are massive. And um, taking elephants hundreds or thousands of miles uh, to a different place uh, hundreds probably, I'm not very good with geography, um, to, uh, it's not easy, so to be transported, they had to create some special harnesses and helicopters lifted these elephants uh, across South Africa to a different park. And the, the helicopters were good, but the harnesses, it turned out, couldn't handle the big daddy elephants, the big older male elephants. So it could handle, could lift the females and could lift the young male elephants, but not the big African bull elephants. And so they needed um, a quick solution and decided just to move the females and the youngsters, uh, the smaller elephants, uh, to the park. So the herd was thinned out and all was well in the Kruger National Park. But in this different park, which was the elephant's new home, they began to find dead bodies of endangered rhinoceroses. Rhinos, let's say rhinos. So at first, uh, they thought they were poachers, and they thought poachers were coming in and getting these endangered rhinos. But they found that the rhinos hadn't died of gunshot wounds. Uh, their horns were intact, so it wasn't poachers. It appeared that the rhinos had been killed violently with deep puncture wounds. And there isn't much in the wild that can kill a rhino, so the rangers set up hidden CCTV cameras throughout the park to get to the bottom of the mystery. And the result was shocking. The culprits turned out to be a band of aggressive, juvenile male elephants. The elephants that had been relocated from the Kruger National Park a few years ago. And the young uh, elephants, uh, male elephants, were caught on camera chasing down the rhinos, knocking them over, stomping, and goring them to death with their tusks. So the juvenile elephants were terrorizing other animals in the park uh, as well. And uh, this kind of behavior was totally rare amongst elephants. So these park rangers were saying something's gone terribly wrong. So the park rangers settled on a theory, which I guess you might be able to guess as well. What had been missing from the relocated herd of elephants was the dominant fathers, the big daddy elephants that remained at the Kruger Park because they couldn't transport them. And so these, in natural circumstances, when all the family are together, the adult male elephants, the bulls, they provide modeling behavior for younger elephants to keep them in line. And so uh, teenage or juvenile male elephants experience a kind of state of frenzy, triggered by mating season and increasing testosterone. And so normally they'd be able to cope with it because they've got the big fathers who show them how to behave, but in this instance, they were missing the civilizing influence of their elders. So to test the theory, the rangers got bigger and stronger um, harnesses and they brought uh, the older bulls from the Kruger National Park. And within weeks, the bizarre and violent behavior of the juvenile elephants are completely stopped. The older bulls let them know that their behavior wasn't elephant-like at all. That's not how to be an elephant. And in a shorter uh, period of time, the young elephants are now following the older elephants, uh, learning how to be an elephant. I love that, that they uh, grown, 
male elephants taught the younger ones how to be an elephant. And I wonder if uh, there's something about fathering that teaches younger humans what it means to be human. And I believe it because Jesus, uh, the Father, and the Holy Spirit make up the Godhead. And uh, there's something about, about the fathering role that reflects the Father heart of God. And if the Father heart of God shows us what it means to be human, then uh, there must be something in the role of a father in a community that shows us what it means to be human. So, I remember, some of you, if you've been around a while, would remember the um, project we partnered with in Cambodia. If you know anything about Cambodia, you know that uh, in the 70s, there was horrendous genocide by a regime uh, in the nation that wiped out a whole generation. And a few years ago, some of us went to visit Cambodia. And one of the things that really stood out in in the communities that we visited was the Um, youthfulness of the people that we were around. So uh, most people were my age and younger. Uh, There were very little fathers and mothers. And uh, as a result, uh, we learned and we've been supporting and praying for the church in Cambodia because we learned that um, the impact of the fatherlessness of that generation was injustice, sex trafficking, women and children, boys and girls were trafficked from rural communities, taken into brothels in the city centers, used and abused, uh, objectified, uh, being treated as less than humans because of the lack of parental figures, mainly fathers, which showed them what it meant to be humans. So we all know, don't we, it's not human to use a child for um, our own sexual desire. In fact, it's, it's evil, it's um, nothing that would reflect the Godhead. Yet this community, this nation was doing that on a regular basis and it appeared that it was happening in front of everyone's eyes. And so we were honored to partner as a church with the local church in Cambodia to bring hope and a solution through mobilizing families in local communities as the church who then began to teach people this is what it means to be human. And in the communities that we partnered with, there is an um, a incredible result where child sex trafficking has completely stopped in those villages because I believe the family of God stood up and said this is what it looks like to be human we want to represent our father in heaven and we're going to show you uh, that this uh, is what he would do and we're going to do that too and I was wondering about the UK and I think in the UK we're living in the greatest generation of fatherlessness in which our fathers are alive so obviously we've had Uh, In the genocide in Cambodia, men were killed in war. But in uh, our nation, often fathers are just absent or missing. You know, of the two million lone parent families, 1.6 million are without a father figure. And one in five of the children uh, that are in lone families never has any contact with their father. A teenager sitting in their GCSEs is more likely to own a smartphone than live with their father. And a million children have no significant contact with their fathers. 
I read this from a report by the Centre for Social Justice this week that said 47% of all UK fathers feel their role isn't valued by society and almost half of the lowest income fathers reported a lack of good fatherhood role models. You know, this morning in the church we want to say uh, we really value fathers, that we don't want any fathers in our uh, church community to say that this is not a valued role. This is a role that represents God himself in our community. Only 25% of British dads feel that there's enough support to help them play a positive role in family life. And you know that I found that they've uh, termed a new breed of Google dads emerging because they don't have male role models. So they don't know how to father. So they're looking on the internet to find out how do we father uh, because they've not had anyone show them what it's like to father or to be human in that way. I think there's a culture war on for the role of men in society and the, I think the enemy is contending for territory to divide, disconnect, disunite and polarise not just the generations but the genders as well. They would say we can do this on our own, we don't need you or we're just going to go, we don't want to stick around. And there's all sorts of stereotypes and things that could be knocking around here but uh, every a unique situation is different. And whatever circumstances that you've grown up with and in, we just want to say in this place, we honor fathers and we believe that fathers have a role to play in our community and we need you. If God's creative intention is man and woman together, to make a secure place, a secure family, where children can feel safe and they can flourish, where they can grow to be everything that God created them to be, then no wonder our society is creaking and feels like some things are breaking. I read this week that 76% of all young offenders had an absent father. Children with no male role model are at home are twice as likely to have underage sex than children living with their father figure. And um, similar figures were shown for teenage pregnancies. And then if you grow up without a dad in your house, mental health problems, for girls, you are twice as likely to experience mental health problems than you are if you grow up with a mum and a dad in your house. And for, for boys, it's two and a half times as likely. Children are more likely to attempt suicide twice as likely to attempt suicide if they don't have um, a, parental, uh, a male parental figure. And alcohol and drug-related problems go massively up by three or four times as much than children that grow up in houses with mum and dad or a male and a female uh, role model. You know, if the absence of a, of a father on our society has such a big impact, if the absence of elephants uh, male elephants in a national park has such a big impact. If the absence of uh, fathering generation in Cambodia had such a big impact, I wonder what would it look like for the presence of really good, holy, compassionate, strong, kind father figures to be dotted all over our city? What could that impact? What could be the reverse of that? In the Old Testament, fatherhood of God is mentioned just 15 times. But in the New Testament, the father metaphor for God is described over 370 times. I think the New Testament is an invitational unveiling of God's plans for humanity, family, relationship, adoption, love, security, hope, all under the protective canopy of the sacrificial, compassionate 
love and power of a good, good father who sent his son to find us, to love us, to rescue us, to show us what it means to rest in his love and to be human, to understand the affirmation and experience the affirmation of his father. And if we can grasp what that really means for us, I think we could truly see this community to be a place where people genuinely feel like they belong with a father's love uh, dominant in this place and our city could be truly impacted. Paul's got a few more details and he's going to share more of what the Bible says about this. Thank you, Joy. Can we thank Joy? What Joy's done this morning is just paint some of the big picture um, of what's going on nationally, perhaps even internationally, and with um, elephants as well. It's um, good to know what's happening in the Kruger Park, isn't it? We've had an update. And, um, but I, I, what I want to do now is just begin to um, earth that into our lives and to say, what is the impact going to be for you and for me? Because I believe we're in a time where, as the world, we need certainty and to know hope and to know what the way is. I love the fact that Jesus said that he is the way. And one of my favorite things about the early church is that they called themselves followers of the way. They were followers of the way. And in Acts, you can read that those of the way, those that actually just follow Jesus. See, there's a a pattern to following Jesus. What Jesus gives us is opportunity to look at his life as the image of the invisible God and to see what it means for us to live for God. What does it mean for us to live like him? Jesus understood who he was in the light of how he understood who God is. And I believe the same is true for you and for me. You see, Jesus understood that as a son, his place was secure, that he's loved, he's known, that he's championed by God the Father, that he's delighted in. All of those things are healthy parenting things and states in a culture that healthy parents can create. And I believe that for you and for me, we've got to understand who God is and what he's like so that we can live in the light of who he is in this world today. So our understanding of ourselves comes from, not from what the world says, but who God says he is and then who we are in the light of that. This, whole, this idea goes through the whole of scripture. And in Genesis 1, as Joy's already mentioned, 26 and 27 talks about how men and women, male and female, are made in the image of God. God has made us in his image to reveal who he is. So male and female, men and women, reveal the very nature of God. And so in the Hebrew mindset, or those writing the Bible, is this sense all along that actually our job is to imitate God, is to show him to the world, to show what he's like. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that people will see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. There's a link between the way that we're supposed to act and imitate God that actually reveals who he is to the world. People are supposed to know what God looks like when they look at you and me. And so as Joyce said, this interesting idea or concept of father in the Old Testament only mentioned 15 times, but in the New Testament so much more. Jesus himself talks about God as his father over 165 times. And so he's constantly talking about father, father, my father, our father. The term he's using is actually the Greek word Abba, or translated as the Greek word Abba, this, this concept of Abba, father. Abba literally is a kid's term. It's like a childish term for God. A, a little child coming to their father and saying, Daddy, Daddy. And so as Jesus is talking about his father, he's taking something about the aspect of God and putting it into place. He's saying, God is our father. He's our Abba. You can trust him. 
You can depend on him. You can come to him as a kid and you can say, Abba, Father, Daddy, I'm coming to you and into your presence. It's a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a word of love and of intimacy, one of trust. You know, as a little child sees their dad and runs towards them. Now, for all of us here, we've had experiences of fathers or perhaps even being fathers as well. And some of those experiences can be good. Some can be not so good. Some can be terrible. Some perhaps just even indifferent. But I love the fact that God puts us in family in this place, that this is the family of God. We are the community of faith, the family of God in this place, that God places the lonely in families. And there's a powerful life that comes together as we understand the community of faith as the family of God. So whatever our experience, perhaps good, perhaps bad, different experiences in different ways, I want us to look to each other and to say in this place we can find fathers and mothers who will look after us. As I think about my own parenting, I'm a, parent, a dad, probably like most dads in the world, who want to be seen as pretty cool by his kids. What I'm realizing as they grow up is I'm not as cool to them as I think I am. And um, this week, um, Finley decided he wanted to do a park run. And um, he's only, because um, he's under 11, he's only 10, he can't run the park run on his own. And so he was like, well, I can't go then if I, if I can't run on my own. So I said, well, I'll run with you. And um, so he's like, oh, that's great, we can go. So we signed up. And then he said to Joy, when I wasn't there, he said to Joy, I'm a bit worried. I don't want to offend Daddy, but I'm a bit worried. He's going to slow me down. And I was like, what? Are you joking? Is this a joke? Like, so you know what they say, pride comes before a fall. Or pride comes before a hurt knee, as it is in, in my case. Um, and I think the reality is I definitely slowed him down. But um, 5K in 32 minutes, which is the first time I've run in over a year. I don't think that's too bad. Thank you. I appreciate that. But there's a sense, isn't it? A sense in us, isn't there, that we want to do well for our kids. We want to father them. We want to um, offer something. But there's a relationship ongoing there. But I, I believe that's the same relationship we have with God. God is Father. We've got to connect to, connect to him um, in that way. God is revealed as Father. And as we're going to see, I just want to take a couple of words for us that I think will help us see what God is like. Because we've got to begin to paint a picture of what God is like so we can reveal him to the world around us. And as we'll see through this, God is revealed as Father, but he's also revealed as Mother. God, is, God has no gender. He's not male or female, but it's through both that God himself is actually revealed. He's revealed as we made in his image, men and women together, stand and reveal who God is. If you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34, I want to give us um, some, um, some context for this. And um, you can see this on the screen if you've not got a Bible with you. But I want to read a few verses from Exodus 34, which is Moses' encounter with God as God reveals to him who he is and his nature. So Exodus 34, we're just going to read a couple of verses, 5, 6, and 7. So Exodus 34, that'll be on the screen as well if you want to find that. But you can look in different translations on your phone um, or in your Bible as well. So this is God meeting Moses and proclaiming who he is and what he's like. And this is what he says. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generations. 
This is one of the greatest passages in Scripture for us to reveal and understand what God is like. It's actually, interestingly, one of the most quoted verses or passages of Scripture by Scripture. So if you look through, whether it's the prophets, Psalms, Jesus himself, these concepts about God are picked up and used over and over again. And so these verses are, it's a great passage of great verses for us, but it's also a verse that is used by the Bible the most often. And um, we see here that God is beginning to introduce himself and say, this is who I am. And so God begins to give a list of, of what he's like and who he is. John Mark Comer says that this is a foundation of God's statement of who he is, but more than that, it's a manifesto for, for Christians to know how to live. It's a foundation for us of what God is like, but it's a manifesto for how peop, the people of God are to live. You see, God is pointing a way to relationship. He comes and stands with Moses. And then he begins to give him, this is a description of what it's like to know me, of what I'm like, of what I do, of the way that I act, the way that I am. You see, God is looking to build a family and to bring Moses into the story of a family that has a DNA, that has a culture. There's a DNA to the family of God. There's a DNA to what God is like and who he is. There's a DNA to the family that Joy and I have created that have passed on. You can see that um, in our kids by eye color, eye hair, just eye shape. If you see any of the Blundell um, children, next generation, you will know that pretty much they are because of their eyes. They just look pretty similar. Most of my nieces and nephews look like they could be my kids. They just look like, look um, very, very similar. There's a DNA that's passed on. And what God is saying here is, here is the DNA of family life to be passed on. There's also a culture that's created in families. We often say to our kids, when, um, when they don't want to um, wear something that looks smart or their behavior's not good, uh, particularly in public, we're saying to them, as a member of our family, what you represent about us is who we are. There's a DNA to represent. There's something that actually we want you to represent. So holes in your shoes and your trousers is not acceptable to us. And that's a constant conversation and battle. They seemingly are okay to Finlay. They're not okay, Finlay. And so, but there's a, there's a DNA then that's passed on, isn't there? There's, a, there's, a, there's something that actually we create in terms of culture, but there's also DNA in terms of into our children. That is the same as what God is looking to do in this place. He's saying that actually for you and for me, we've been created new as the children of God, made into new creations. He's brought us into the family. There's a DNA to live by. And Exodus 34 gives us this picture. God tells us what he's like. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations. But he's also just. And when there's guilt and needing punishment. But he only goes to the third or fourth generation in that aspect. Whereas it's a thousand generations of his goodness. What a wonderful description of an incredible father. Slow to anger, rich in love, abounding in goodness and faithfulness towards us. Now, I've not got time to go into all of this now, but I just want to take two of these words to help us bring out what does this mean for us, and then how can we live in response to it. God says at the start, he is the gracious and compassionate God. You can see on the screen, the Hebrew for this is Raham we Hanan. Raham we Hanan. It's a pairing of two words together, of compassionate and gracious. God is bringing those two things together about himself. So if we just separate them for a moment to explain them, and then we'll bring them back together. Raham literally is this word compassionate, 
and it means merciful. It's a good feeling. It's a feeling that you have when you have a response of love and compassion towards another. It's actually the strong feeling that a mother has towards their children. One of the greatest examples in Scripture of this is where King Solomon, presiding as judge, is looking to resolve a situation where two women are saying, this is my baby. He just comes up with a simple solution, chop the baby in half, they can have half each. The mother's response in that moment is one of, let the boy live, let this child live, he can just go to the other person. There's a response, a feeling, the same words used there for compassion, raham, the same compassionate, deep, feeling that God has for you and for me. That God's first choice of words to describe himself is one of feeling, of saying, and my feeling towards you is deep. I love you like a mother loves her child. So the first word, raham, is a feeling word. The second word, gracious, is actually an action word. So gracious is the word hanan, and this word is an active thing. This is an action. So this means to show grace or to show favor. In two kings, we see this word pop up in an interesting example where it's talking about um, Israel is about to be attacked and destroyed by a large invading force. And God says in two kings, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them. Concern, compassion, grace, or Hanun in that moment looks like defense and protection of a small nation. So God acts on our behalf. So when we pray and when we come before God, we come before a God who has a feeling towards us of compassion and of love for us that's deep and that moves him to action. And so what God is saying is whatever we face, whatever we're going through, wherever we are today, we come before a gracious and compassionate God, one who feels and one who acts, one who is willing to move in power for us. Now, it may be that in our lives, we're thinking through situations that we're facing today, and we're thinking, God, I need you to move in power. But isn't it so good to know that the God that we serve, the God that we love, God who is Father, his approach to us is one of opening his arms towards us. He runs towards us because of the feeling of love towards us. And he comes and wraps his arms around us because he wants to act and defend and to protect us. And so it might be that this week you just want to remind yourself of that. When difficult um, situations come up um, in the office, when you're working, or perhaps there's a problem um, to solve, or you've hit a financial difficulty. Perhaps even just as you go for a run or as you um, drive home, whatever it might be as you worship God, it might just be something, a moment of just saying, yeah, God, I know that your feeling towards me is strong and it's deep. And as I step towards you, you're running towards me with open arms. I believe that can change and transform what happens in those moments in our workplaces, in our communities. You see, there's a, an expression of this that then we've got to bring to the world around us as we imitate God. We get an opportunity to do the same for those around us. We get to imitate him in the way that we offer compassion and grace to those around us in our lives. And so it might be that as we first begin to think about this, our first step is to remind ourselves that God is Father and that we can come to him in that way, that God is good and God is love. Because I don't want to leave us today with a, a place of just thinking that knowing God as Father, knowing God as good, knowing that he's gracious and compassionate and abounding in love just means that we're going to be a little bit nicer this week to people around us. I believe there's a radical call on our lives to live differently. 
I believe there's a radical call for us to say, actually, there's a life to be lived to mother and father a city and the people around us and to say, God, we need you to move in power in this place. We need those um, situations, as Joyce just talked about, for people to rise up and to say, there's a dream, there's a vision that God has put in my heart and in my life for this to be different for the future. This isn't going to be the same. Joyce painted a brilliant picture of what happens when there's fatherlessness. I just wonder what begins to happen when fathers show up, when fathers are present, when in the community together we can say we're going to build something for the future and for a legacy. So what I just want to do now is just take us to a moment. If you just want to close your eyes for a moment. I want us to ask ourselves in our hearts, do we believe that God is our father and that he's good? Are we living in the light of that? And then I finally just want to apply it into our lives. But let's pray. Holy Spirit, I believe you're moving in this place. And that you're moving in power. And God, I pray across this room for revelation. That you're good. That you're our heavenly Father. That you see us with compassion and with grace. And that you run towards us this morning. God, where there's places in our lives that we need mercy. I speak mercy over our lives. Where there's places in our situations and workplaces and family life and community where we need to show mercy. I pray, God, that we would be people of mercy as we imitate you. But God, come and bring a revelation to us today that you're good and that you're for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to earth this before... um, before, we, before Joy comes to pray for us, within the context of legacy. You see, I believe there's an opportunity for us here to, to do something different, to say to God, I'm going to live a radical life with eternity and with legacy and with inheritance and future in mind. There's an opportunity for us to do that. You see, our response, if we look at what happens when there's fatherlessness, should cause a gut reaction inside of us to respond and to say God we need to move in power and to do something different but this isn't a short answer it's not a quick fix it's actually a moment of time I believe today where the Holy Spirit is going to be brooding over us to drop dreams and visions anointing upon our lives to say we're going to stand up we're going to create community in this place that builds fathers and mothers in this place but we're also going to see a city reached and mothered and fathered And so there's a legacy, there's an impact that we can have. Now Hebrews 7 gives us an interesting picture of what legacy begins to look like and what the future can look like in moments and decisions that we make today. And so at the start of chapter 7 in Hebrews, it talks about Melchizedek and it says this, Melchizedek was a king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also, king of Salem means king of peace. And so just walk with me for a moment. Here we have Abraham. He's just um, had a great victory and defeat of kings. He's got great plunder and spoils of war from that. He's been enriched because of it. And as he's traveling back, he meets a priest called Melchizedek, a very strange character in one way, but someone who is a a high priest of God and a a king of peace, a king of righteousness. And Abraham honors him by giving him 10%. 
No one's told Abraham to do that. No one's taught Abraham about the tithe or said giving 10% is a good thing. But Abraham just knows in his heart that to give 10% of this to Melchizedek is an act of honor, of love, and of blessing to him. And so he blesses him. It's a sign of honor. But Hebrew then, Hebrews then gives us the legacy impact of this. In verse 9 of chapter 7, it goes on to say, One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So just walk this out with me for a moment because there's a moment of time where Abraham blesses Melchizedek with 10% and it points the way to the one who is unborn inside of him, Levi, yet to be known, yet to be born, who actually then reaps the benefit of 10% being given to him in the future. There's a legacy moment and opportunities in decisions that we make today that can impact the future generations, both of children spiritually and our children to come in the future. There's a moment of time where we get to say, we're going to rise up in this moment and say, our city, our nation needs fathers and mothers to rise up. As we begin to say yes to that, as we respond and say, God, we can see this for the future, then I believe we make a moment, a time, a choice moment, just like Abraham did giving 10%, that actually caused Levi one might even say that Levi then collects the tenth because he paid the tenth through Abraham. There's going to be spiritual sons and daughters that reap the benefits of decisions that you and I make today. There's moments and opportunity for us to do that. Joy, would you come and join me? Because we're going to pray together. Perhaps you want to close your eyes. Because I believe that God's going to release in this place dreams over our lives, anointing, radical ways to father and mother. It starts with compassion and it moves to action. Joy, would you pray for us? Yeah, thank you, Father, that you're uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Thank you that you knew our history, you know, you know our pain, you know perhaps where we've not been fathered and you know the moments that you stood in and fathered us. And in the context of all of eternity, we stand here today. Yeah. And like the church rose up in Cambodia to put a stop to sex trafficking, we want to say that as we receive your love in our lives this morning, perhaps just open your heart, open your hands, receive the Father's love in our lives this morning. We receive an eternal perspective and we know that you're working all things for the future, good, and for inheritance, yeah. and for legacy, and for our city. And so we declare over this city, we declare because of our presence and because of the presence of the fathers in this city, this city will flourish. Amen. Because of yeah. the presence of the community of Christ in this city, that we'll see children find home, that we'll see people grow and flourish, we'll see people know who they are and that their security is in Christ. And we make a declaration as a church family together that we know that fathers and mothers today are standing together and believing that you have got incredible things for your kingdom to expand and advance in this city. And we declare it together as we receive the gracious, 
compassionate love of our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray one final prayer together, which is going to come up on the screen. And if you're here today and you don't yet know God and how good He is and how wonderful He is, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And so we're going to pray this prayer out loud together. And then once we've done that, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes. And then I'm going to ask if you want to respond to God today, to open your heart and your life to Him, say yes to Him, to open to a relationship with such a wonderful, loving God. As everyone's got their eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so that one of my friends can drop a booklet into your hand and help you on the next steps of your journey. But let's pray this out loud together. Thank you, God, for loving me before I ever loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that I can get connected to you now because you are alive today. I admit that I've lived my life without you and have messed up. I ask for your total forgiveness and I commit myself to you. Help me to submit my life to your teaching and direction from now on. I receive you into my life and ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen. Just close your eyes for a moment. If you're here today and you've prayed this prayer for the first time and you want to open your life to God and say yes to him. He's wonderful. He's brilliant. As everyone's got their eyes closed, I just want to invite you now just to raise your hand nice and high. Say yes to him. Open your life to Jesus Christ. Anybody want to do that today? Wonderful. Amen.